Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I hope the bank holiday weekend has proved restful or carnivalesque, depending on what you got up to. Uh, I'm going to get straight to introducing my guest because we had a fairly rich and robust and lengthy conversation, which I'm excited to share with you. My guest this week is Carmen Thompson, a film programmer, curator and creative producer based in Scotland, who predominantly works with black film and cinema from the African continent and the diaspora, especially at their intersections with non-fiction storytelling. She currently works as cultural curator and programmer for award-winning exhibitors We Are Parable and as producer for international sales and distribution company Aya Films, where in recent years she has worked on the UK releases of acclaimed Kenyan film Rafiki, Jamaican drama Sprinter and Sundance award-winning This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. Aya Films also work across media education and in 2021 developed the app Curate It, an interactive course designed to help democratise film programming and increase access to curatorial learning, supported by Screen Scotland. Carmen has over eight years' experience in film exhibition and distribution and has worked for a range of organisations, including Sheffield Dockfest, Africa in Motion Film Festival, Everyman Cinemas, New Black Film Collective and Film Hub Scotland. She also serves on the board of Document Human Rights Film Festival, Glasgow Film and the British Independent Film Awards. We talk about her fairly circuitous route to programming and the responsibilities or considerations that come with that role, how she approaches contextualising or reframing African cinema, finding audiences who have been historically underserved when it comes to programming, leaving behind a PhD, wading into the world of freelance work and the interrogation at the heart of her programming. As always, these interviews are recorded over Zoom, so quality can vary, but I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is episode 118 of Best Girl Grip. I always tend to start these interviews in the realm of higher education. I just think, you know, if we're lucky enough to have the opportunity, that's often where many of us get our first sense of what we want to do in the adult real world. So did you go to university? And if so, what did you study there? I always, this question is always really funny because I did something really stupid. <laughs> I did go to university. I did uh, astrophysics. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those funny ones. I think I, I've always like loved film my whole life, um, but it was always like, for me, it just seemed like this thing that other people did, you know, this like Hollywood thing that the people off the TV or the, you know, these un, this unreachable thing. I didn't even like I sort of consider the, the idea that I'd ever be able to work in it. And I liked maths, I liked physics, I liked space. <laughs> I was a very like nerdy kid. I was really, I was like the one that went home and like went and did my homework and didn't go out and sort of hang out and do social things. Uh, so yeah, I just did, I just thought, I thought that's what you had to do. You had to pick some sort of very sort of like um, academic quote unquote um, thing. So yeah, I did astrophysics. And then yeah, being at uni, you start to realise all the other options, <laughs> the other, all the other things that people are doing. Um, and then there's also like all the other of like societies and everything that happened around university life and you think oh okay these things maybe are more achievable than I think they are I mean I, I did love it but it was it was very much I think ticking a box and I didn't I think it's so difficult to make a decision about your life that young yeah. um, so it's never like what I anticipated doing a career in I just thought oh, I'll do this thing because I'm good at maths and physics I do think it's a podcast first. I don't think anyone's done <laughs> astrophysics before. At university, was it through like film societies that you kind of were opened up to the world of, of cinema and then also maybe the film industry? Was that how it revealed itself to you? Um, oddly, no. Just because of how intense a course it was, I actually, I say that all these things were happening. I actually didn't get as heavily involved in, in this sort of extracurricular stuff, but it was lots of my friends and stuff were doing it. And I think I just I was aware that people did, for example, like film studies mm. at school and like you could, at university and that you could study these things. So n- not really other than sort of on a personal level, like I, I've always kind of been sort of like going to the cinema and watching films. And that was always part of my life anyway. But it wasn't until I graduated and I was like looking for jobs. It was at that point that I was like, what am I going to what job am I going to look for? And I was just like maybe I'll just try and find a job in some sort of film thing (laughs) maybe they'll have me like sort of applied to like do work experience in like production companies and just just sent out all these emails to people I was just like I've just got to make the decision I know I've done astrophysics I know this is like I know my parents probably want me to go on some sort of graduate scheme all my friends 
on my course were went into sort of investment banking or I could or continued on like physics and, and that but I was like I'm just gonna apply to be a runner <laughs> <laughs> um I just went super left field with it but yeah it was very it came at the at my graduation stage really but I was it was just that I became aware that like sort of peers and people that you know had sort of the same experience as me were going into that so it, I think it, the kind of seed planted in that way and was that application to production companies successful did you get a job as a runner <laughs> yeah I did well firstly I did like a month's work experience at this production company they did sort of like commercial like corporate documentaries and like little factual pieces which is really interesting and then yeah I applied I applied for a million different jobs to the point where when I when I got the the call for this for this interview for to be a runner she didn't reference what the job was or who the company was oh. she just said oh can you come in and gave me the address and I like I said sent so many applications I had no idea what the role was <laughs> or like what this company did but yeah I I am um, interviewed to be a runner in this big sort of post post-production house called uh NPC which is the moving picture company in Soho and yeah we just sort of I feel really lucky uh, her name is Ferial she's like my first sort of boss in the um in the film industry and we just yeah we just sort of got on and I think weirdly my degree in astrophysics and the kind of math stuff so we did a lot of we did a lot of coding and things like that it was actually did sort of lend itself to like visual effects like yeah. a lot of the software they use I was like familiar with and sort of 3D animation and animation is on like a granular level, like maths and, and mm-hmm. science, like you're sort of like, you know, modeling the world. So that there was that level of understanding. Yeah. And she just took a chance on me and I, I, I started as a runner. I think it was like sort of six months after I graduated. I've sort of just been floating around for a while. And I mean, given that running, you can do that in like so many different aspects of the industry. As you say, you're a post house, but you can be like a production runner, like either for companies or offices, but also on set. Did you have a sense of a career that you wanted to pursue and what that might lead you to? Or it was very much, okay, I've got the first job. Let's just see where it leads. It was absolutely that. (laughs) I had no clue. Like I said, before I went to the interview, I didn't even know what this company did. Yeah, it was very much just like, what are the jobs that people can do? just sort of immersing myself in the company. And I think that's what's such an amazing thing that you get to experience as a runner, that perhaps if the people that come, I think you can always tell, and I, because I was at NPC for, for a while, like I moved up, I moved into various roles. You can always tell the people that had been runners who were working in other departments, because firstly, they just had sort of like a, an empathy <laughs> with perhaps people lower down them. And it, like, there wasn't like an ego there necessarily, which, which a lot of people do have in the film industry, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> But also they just had this sort of like sort of a more holistic and like macro like idea of the company and, and what like what we, the company was trying to achieve as a whole, where sometimes when you come and enjoy one department, especially in something that's as fragmented as post-production and visual effects, everyone has their own little department. And sometimes you don't really get a sense of how that fits into the broader, yeah, the kind of broader picture. So, yeah, it was just just talking to people and yeah you obviously you just spend your time moving between different departments and also like running drives between production companies and doing various tasks that that sort of bring you into contact with other other organizations either working in post but or in other parts of the kind of pipeline yeah production companies and and sometimes we got involved in sort of like concept and and things like right from the very kind of pre-production stage of things so yeah it was just it was amazing really and they by the time on my second year they introduced this sort of training scheme for runners where you actually got they had sort of like we went down to the cinema downstairs and we did like a 10-week course where it sort of taught you about all the different yeah all these different parts of the of the pipeline which was also incredible even when I ended up moving into a different department it wasn't necessarily that it had been my goal like half finally I'm in the marketing department I just sort of was like just went with the I was sort of I, I didn't really have a direction which I think actually in hindsight worked quite well for me at the time I did feel like I was flailing around a bit and other people had sort of this more blinkered drive where they knew exactly where they wanted to go and I was interested looking back actually at your CV you mentioned like moving into the marketing department there and I think we had quite similar trajectories like I spent quite a lot of years in in marketing and communications before kind of graduating onto other things and I'm wondering kind of was that something you were interested in at the time or it felt maybe more like an accessible route like I didn't love marketing like it was great at the time but it also in hindsight just taught you a lot because as you say you kind of you get quite a broad overview and there's lots of transferable skills and I'm wondering yeah how you felt about being kind of in marketing roles when you were first starting out. I think it's actually really interesting to reflect on that time and it's such an interesting question because at the time because when you're a runner 
like all you want to do is be promoted like that's just like the, that's like the, that's what everybody talks about when 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 the next like sort of entry level role is gonna is becoming available in, in other parts of the company everyone's vying for it everybody's talking about moving on to different departments so at the time I was like yes like I'm I'm promoted like this is amazing but when I look back on it what I wanted to do was production mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to do production and a lot of people did and I think my confidence is like built since then but I wasn't very outspoken I didn't have the like personality that you're meant to have that you're like meant to have to be a, a producer or that you're supposedly meant to have mm-hmm. I didn't have like this huge personality I didn't you know I didn't I don't know I didn't I just didn't think I'd tick the boxes I was quite like quiet I was quite reserved but you know I came from a mathematical background like my brain is built to be to work in production like that's I work in like spreadsheets like that's how you know I know I would have been really good at it now looking back and I wish I'd maybe had sort of that that like fight in me a little bit more but I was yeah just so I didn't have yeah I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself and I think that it's exactly that marketing this marketing role came up and yeah nobody wanted to do it I think essentially and like any marketing department it was mostly women so they they came up to me and they said oh do you want to do this marketing thing so they came to me they didn't ask any of the other there was at that time most of the most of the runners I was working with were men nobody asked them (laughs) they wanted to do it so yeah I think about it now and I think oh actually I could see what was happening there but again like you say I think it ended up being a really amazing move and I think actually I don't necessarily think I would be where I am today if I hadn't gone down that marketing track because it was exactly that it was yeah I got this I got this whole view of this of the organization and really yeah I got an idea about how you communicate what's really exciting about what the organization does to audiences which is like what I do in like basically everything I do now like it's like finding that thing that you know, I, cause I found it incredible. Like, cause I'm, you know, I, I'm still a nerd and I love, I, I just love post-production visual, visual effects are just like mind blowing and the people that do it and the level, like at that point, MPC was working on like the, um, the Lion King, that first one with Beyonce in and everything, oh, where yeah. it was like photo real animals. <laughs> like all the animators would go to the zoos and they would like study like the monkeys and all this <laughs> stuff. And, and yeah, they had had all these books of like about sort of, animal anatomy it was just incredible it was amazing I don't think people realize like how much goes on um, behind the scenes it was really it's such an amazing experience to be able to work in that department where you got to see I think about how you could how you could communicate what you find so exciting and get people engaged in it and also being an being like an advocate for the artists who are completely pop like one of the most like underappreciated sets of people in in the whole film industry I think vision effects artists they come right at the end of credits and even in animated films they're like down on the bottom you know when they when it's they built it themselves like it's them that's, that's done it and um, so be able to go and talk I, I got to go and talk to them and talk about their process and then take that back and write a press release or, or like make it make a behind the scenes video or whatever it was that we were doing to market and about kind of advocate and like showcase the work that they were doing and I felt like it felt like a real privilege to be in that position and also there was just yeah there was just like another level of like learning that I got in terms of our relationship with studios because obviously marketing you know in in for a post-production company you're constantly talking to studios and thinking about what like what you're allowed to release and they have to approve things and I started to get an understanding of the sort of distribution and the like that sort of pipeline the kind of wider bubble around around everything so but yeah, certainly looking back now, I think it was a sort of more accessible route for me, given where I was at and what my sort of personality was. And it's another form, like marketing to me is like another form of contextualising for the audience, like making sense yeah. of maybe what it is they're about to watch or how it's been made. And as you say, like that's so integral to them programming and, and maybe the types of work that you're doing now. I'm wondering when you connected the dots between the two or when that interest in, in programming kind of started to bubble up for you. Basically, and this is why I say I don't think I would be where I am if I hadn't moved into marketing. I was originally working in the advertising part of of, my, of the MPC, so working on like ads, visual effects. And I moved into the film department, then started working with studios. And then at, at that time, I was contacted by a recruiter who was recruiting for a sort of a, a comms position at a small television channel, mm-hmm. which is 
very weird. I don't know how I ended up in front of there, <laughs> how I popped up on LinkedIn or whatever. I'm not sure. But I went in again, not really knowing. They were very sort of, they didn't give a lot of detail about what the television company did. So I went in and it, it was for this channel called uh, the Africa Channel, which actually doesn't exist anymore because unfortunately they went out of business. But yeah, I, I grew up in Kenya myself. I moved to the UK when I was 12. And my love for like, sort of going back back a little bit, but my love for like film or my interest, sort of this like, interest that's been there and perhaps I only started having a way to sort of verbalize it was around this time was around the kind of role of media in in our lives and certainly in terms of like representation because it was definitely like this huge shock to me moving to the UK the way in which like the place I grew up was shown to people here and the ideas that people had about where I'd come from because of that that the way that the questions like, I mean, a lot of that is very complex and a lot of that comes from other things. <laughs> but the questions I would get asked and yeah, there's what people reference when they when they spoke about Kenya, but also the African continent more broadly. Mm-hmm. It made me realize like, yeah, how important representation was and how kind of how media plays a role in shaping like so much about how we interact with and understand the world. So yeah, I got, I went to this interview at this channel and I was like, I cannot believe <laughs> Like, I can't believe I've ended up in front of these people, but this is amazing. And basically, they were a channel that they were a UK based channel. So they showed content from the African continent um, to the diaspora here in the UK. So they were so it was anything from like soap operas and like news documentaries and like Nollywood. Mm-hmm. So all this content that people would be like watching on the continent, they kind of curated a, you know, a, a schedule and showed it here to the UK. So, yeah. So then I at that time, I had grown a little bit in confidence. And when they brought me into this this comms job, I said, yes, I've been working in comms, but I'm actually super interested in production and other other elements. And again, I don't know. I really like we just really gelled and we we had a great conversation. And they went away and came back and had sort of created a more a role that was more in line with what I was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. So it was it was comms, but it was also production. So working on their sort of in-house made content, but also working with the acquisitions manager on like curating what we showed in general on on the channel. It brought me into new spaces that again I didn't know existed. So we started partnering with well, they'd always they partnered with film festivals. So I got to go to film festivals. I got to go to academic conferences at SOAS where people were talking about you know the role of media in Africa in sort of a very sort of um, academic way and sort of philosophical ways and again I got this language for these things that I've been thinking about for so long and uh, yeah for the first time I started working with diaspora audiences and really thinking in terms of comms but also production and sort of programming that was when programming really came into my role thinking about these specific audiences and and kind of programming and creating work and communicating specifically for them and thinking about yeah how a lot of programming and a lot of like comms and marketing as well is not for has not historically been for them and has not spoken to them um, and has therefore like isolated them as an audience so yeah so it was really in that time that I started seeing because I was literally doing them as part of the same role like how all these things are like so heavily connected I'd love to talk a little bit about that and maybe about some of the language and how you approached writing about cinema from, you know, Africa in a, in a way that felt different to how it had been presented before and how you present it to an audience without exoticizing it or marginalizing it. Was that something you were kind of consciously trying to alter? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just about who you have in mind. Um, and I think even even myself as a marketer and somebody like you think of an audience member and I think just because of the way that it's like we've historically been taught or taught or um or just you know practice marketing or consumed marketing there is like a very there's like a specific audience and a specific language that we're used to hearing and for like if you're if you do it enough you think that's just the way that you're meant to do marketing and it's not that it's it's embedded with all these, you know, with all these kind of assumptions and these, stru- and, you know, these power structures that exist in all other parts of society. Like, so I just, I think it was in that move that I started realizing, oh, I can talk in a different way. And people will be, I think in that process, people will be seen and people will be more responsive. But also I think it started with the content. We were just showing different types of content. We were showing films made by filmmakers from the African continent. We were showing yeah, Nollywood cinema, which I ended up falling in love with. And it's like, <laughs> I love, which, yeah, for those who don't know, it's, it's um, yeah, the Nigerian film industry. It's like the second biggest film industry in the world. And yeah, I think it's like in popular culture, in mainstream sort of, I guess, white popular culture, it's often mocked. And in the film circles, it's definitely not taken seriously. But 
in Nigeria, but also in diasporas all across Africa and outside of Africa. People love it. There's such, there's such huge audiences for it. And if you start from a position of, okay, this is something, this is a piece of content I need to take seriously because people love it. Yeah. Then you sort of, then you end up communicating in a different way. And if you have that content, that exciting content that's already doing all this work of, of not exoticizing these cultures and, mm. and allowing people to speak for themselves. Yeah. And just content made by people from Africa about their own lives. It's very easy to to communicate that to audiences because it's already doing that work. So it's just about elevating that and pulling this, pulling those threads out and making sure that you find them, to find the audiences. Because again, I think often marketing in a lot of like organizations and venues, there's very much like build it and they will come mentality. Just like we've, we've put on this film. So like, you know, come and see it. But yeah. it's like, if you're only posting it on your social media channels and people that you historically never been in your venue don't follow you on social media, how are they going to find out about it? <laughs> so you need to think about who do I want to reach and where are they? <laughs> and then go and find them. Go find the people that they look, you know, they, they they get their news from, that they get their events from. Find out how you can communicate in a way that will be they'll be responsive to. Or, and as I've started to think about more in my programming, start with them first and think about what it is that they want to see and then give it to them. So it's not, you know, that try and sort of break down that sort of hierarchy of like, I'm the person that tells you what's good. I'm wondering as well, like that transition and and that exposure to programming, how you then sort of transitioned into doing it more, I guess, on a full time basis or establishing yourself as someone that, you know, could do that job. I mean, I still to this day don't feel, <laughs> don't feel like I'm someone that's established, established myself in any way. And it's it's the story of my whole career, really. It's just been I've ended up in front of the right people. I've just met the right people. And we've just gelled. And I've just sort of gone with my instincts a little bit. But I think, yeah, that time working so specifically with audiences and also having access to so much content, because we I would watch so much stuff before it came on the channel but also everything that we showed on the channel and I got to go to uh, to film festivals and people would you know all these filmmakers on the continent would send us their would send us their work and yeah and then I just had this unique sort of relationship with with our diaspora audiences but I've also got kind of a sense more broadly of diaspora audiences in the UK yeah I just sort of started building this wealth of yeah knowledge about these spaces and connections in these spaces and I I don't know how I ended up (laughs) programming and I think you just sort of start working with organizations and for example an, an organization like Sheffield because I, I worked a lot in documentaries again I worked in the marketing department there as a first role and now that was about I didn't even know maybe six or seven years ago and this year I was part of the programming team and other years I've done other other parts other kind of things I've produced like panels and I was a reader for the, the meat market, the sort of um, pitching market there. So I think you just sort of attach yourself to organisation, <laughs> yeah. and then somehow you end the yeah, they end up asking you back. But it's very much just sort of like floating between things and just little jobs trying to sort of make sure that you're still earning enough money to live. <laughs> well, yeah, that's interesting. Was there a moment where you went officially freelance? Because up until now, it sounds like those previous jobs were like full-time jobs. And then was there a point at which you felt like you had enough work or you had enough projects on the roster with various different companies that you said, okay, I can I can do this now as my, my main source of income? Like, was there a moment of clarity around that? No, not really. It wasn't really a conscious decision because the reason why I'm actually, the reason why I'm in Scotland is because I am, um, I'd applied to do a PhD and I was doing a PhD for about two years in, in documentary film and then doing bits of stuff on the side to sort of supplement that. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that was actually a huge privilege because I had the financial security of doing a PhD. Therefore, I could take on like a tiny little programming role here and a, a tiny little thing here and just gain experience on top of that. And then it was a casualty of the pandemic, the PhD. <laughs> I uh, had to pause it because I was meant to go on my, on my field work to Kenya for, for six months just as we went into lockdown, there's nothing else I could do. So I just put it on hold at that point. started working, when you put your PhD on hold, you also put your funding on hold. So I had to find sources of income. So I went sort of informally freelance at that point, which I thought was going to be temporarily until I could go back and do my PhD. But then it just, after a while, it was about, it was about 18 months. And I thought, I don't know why I'm doing a PhD. <laughs> I'm already doing what I want, what I what I was hoping might happen after my PhD. I'm already like able to work with all the filmmakers that I was hoping to to work with as part of my PhD. 
And also, to be perfectly honest, I lost all hope in academia, the ways that the universities acted during the pandemic, how the way they treated students. I think we all knew it was there, but they were just, I mean, they didn't even have any shame about it anymore, about how how they essentially see uh, universities as a business when they're not meant to be businesses. They essentially operate as corporations. And I just thought, I don't really want to be part of that space in in that capacity anymore. So, yeah, so I quit my PhD. And at that point, I became um, officially freelance. That's only been about a year and a half. Yeah, it wasn't really a conscious decision. I just had no permanent role to go into. So I was just like, I've just got to keep going. And again, like the nature of freelance roles, it's not like you sudden they suddenly finish and are now doing nothing. I mean it does that sometimes it works like that. But there's always I'm always doing something else. So like this sort of opportunity to think about whether maybe I want to go and do something full time hasn't yet presented itself because I'm still on this sort of hamster wheel of like, oh the next project is sort of melting into the next one. I do enjoy it. And I can't really imagine my life with just one one single role. But at the same time, I don't know how sustainable it is, but kind of level at which I work. You know, as you say, you, you're sort of presented with this opportunity and had to kind of go and find work and find projects. How did you go about doing that? Did you have, um, you know, like slithers of, you know, relationships or, or opportunities that you thought, OK, I'll, I'll see if they've got anything coming up. Like, did people come to you? How did that begin to spitball? It's about it's a sort of a combination of, of both of them, really, because at that point, I built like a few relationships with organizations. For example, I was working when I went into freelance, but I was um, working for Ask Emotion Film Festival here in here in Scotland. So I co-directed the 2020 festival with Liz Chegger, who runs it now, which is the online festival. And that was like hugely, that was a huge learning curve because we, we were just putting on this online festival and we didn't know anything about <laughs> online platforms. So yeah, I'd already sort of built, built up a relationship with them. People like Sheffield, I'd already built up a relationship with. So yeah, so as... You know, so you kind of know, especially with festivals, because they, they happen at particular times of the year, you know, at different times of the year, OK, I'm probably going to be working with them in some capacity. But then, yeah, around the time that I knew, OK, I'm going to be freelance now, uh, I did I did realize, that, oh, I've got to actively go and seek out work to supplement this stuff because I don't have a PhD, you know, funding anymore. And I do need to pay my rent. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for example, like We Are Parable, they had a a role and so I actively applied applied for the role that I well I applied for a different role and ended up with the role that I've got now yeah and I think but I think because of sort of maybe the work that people has maybe just started um seeing my name places I don't know how these these things happen but then yeah you get people sort of approaching you for, for smaller smaller little things and yeah now I'm sort of in a position where that's that tends to be how it works more but also it's very hard to get out of the mentality. So I, I find it very difficult to say no to things when I am approached by stuff because I am in that mentality of like, oh, I need to say yes to this thing because who knows when the next thing will come. So I need to start shifting, <laughs> shifting that and maybe kind of curating uh, my own my own sort of um, work schedule a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. It comes with time, I think. Saying no is something that you have to yeah. get better at. I want to come back to We Are Parable and the work that you do with them and also look at that role in the context of a programme you put together called Testimonies. And and talk to me a little bit about what you're looking to showcase with that programme and how you sourced the films that could, you know, maybe illustrate the themes that you're looking to explore. Yeah, so like I said, I applied for um, a role was it was actually a marketing role ironically at We Are Parable because I literally was obsessed with everything they did at that point and I would have done anything for them and again, and again yeah we um, I applied for that role I didn't get it but again we just had this like energy and I'm glad that they felt it as much as I did and they wanted to work together so they yeah they brought me on in this sort of different role it's called it's called a cultural curator um, which then sort of got this programming addition to it as I started programming them as well because they've got this huge sort of um nationwide 18 month season that they're doing called who we are mm-hmm. which is like this big celebration of black cinema of cinema from the African continent from you know filmmakers from across the world and yeah it's nationwide so they had been in London mainly because it's just been them two for almost 10 years and um, they are incredible I don't know how they did it and yeah this project allowed them to bring on a wider team and also it was really important for them to curate sort of culturally relevant and like regionally relevant events when they went out of London so they brought on people that were already working and had experience of audiences in those regions to help them kind of cultivate that and curate um, both those different events so that's how I came on on board with them but in our in our initial meeting I had I'd spoken to some about how much I love documentary and I find that intersection of 
of black filmmaking and you know filming films from the African continent and and non-fiction work is like so interesting to me especially because and I think it just harks back to this kind of obsession I've had from a young age with this idea about representation and so any sort of any content claiming to be non-fictional claiming claiming kind of some like alliance with truth or, or or the real in any way coming from black filmmakers black creative is like so interesting to me and I don't think it gets showcased enough I think we could look to and I'm not I'm going to try not to go on a tangent about this but I think we could look to documentaries by black filmmakers you know for like they're like knowledge making for me it's like philosophical they like allow us to think about the world in different ways and to me they feel closer to reality than than like Netflix documentaries are like the kind of the way in which we're used to watching documentary film, especially from a British standpoint. So that was when we, when this um, funding stream came up with the BFI Doc Society uh, that was, it was called the Ripple Effect Fund. And it's basically this fund that was designed for that, just that of trying to, trying to sort of take the funding out of the centers of power and give it to sort of document, they call, they call them like documentary activists, advocates, and like community-led organization, you know, organizations around the country outside of London who are already doing work around documentary and kind of cultivating um, a documentary kind of industries or filmmaking in, in, in the UK and giving funding to them to allow them to kind of elevate their work or do these things. So, yeah, so we applied for, for that and was successful. And Testimonies was, it was amazing, actually, because it was basically I just got to have full sort of creative control of this project. It was my baby for three months. And it's something that I've been, yeah, thinking about a long time for a long time, just because of, yeah, of how the British kind of documentary landscape is framed and how we think about documentary in the UK historically. And I think, maybe, obviously, in smaller community spaces, that's not the case. But on a more sort of mainstream level, we associate it with a lot of sort of like white, the white male kind of voice of God type thing or like David Attenborough nature documentaries yeah there's just there's a very sort of very specific way that which white British people have made documentaries for a very long time so I really wanted to try and showcase the work that does exist that's just but it's just not necessarily visible Mm. a a lot of the time of black British women and non-binary filmmakers that were working with documentary films so in terms of yeah in terms of finding films a lot of the work is, is films that I'd already like you know just you know as you kind of build up these sort of like lists I have sort of notes <laughs> notes in my apps of all these different <laughs> films and um, films that I've been watching for a long time films that I'd had opportunities to watch for example like Doc Fest and, mm-hmm. and had come into contact in other ways yeah there was also quite a quite an intense period of, of research in, in, with that project of really wanting to like even look outside of my own bubble and thinking about documentary in a more expansive way, perhaps, and like including sort of moving image work and artist films that was, yeah, that was exploring sort of the real and in, in some way. We did uh, a series of events around um, Cherish Oteca's The Black Cop, the, the, which was a BFI funded film, and toured that around different cities, mm-hmm. had incredible conversations with Cherish and G. And it, it was amazing because it culminated. We had our last screening on like, the Thursday or something and then the Sunday was the BAFTAs and they won the BAFTA and then they thanked Real Parable in the BAFTA in the BAFTA speech and it was like I had COVID at the time and I was just oh. lying in bed just crying so sick just like oh and then yeah then after that we had a we had a, a series of online programs that, again we're exploring di- documentary in different in different ways so we had ones that were that were sort of moving image pieces and then ones of exploring like uh black womanhood and then yeah just kind of interrogating all these these terms like what it means to be British and what it means to be black what it means to be woman or yeah it was a really it was a really wonderful project and I really would like to see more funding like with that kind of um, motivation behind it of like really just taking it out the centers of power because I think for example institutions like the BFI define so much the content that we get to see as audiences um, around the country and again it's like what I was saying earlier about for me, it's about taking it to audiences and thinking about what they want or taking it at least to the communities that have to organisations or to individuals who have knowledge of audiences or working with specific communities and know what it is and how what they, is they want to see and how how to communicate to that and how to get them to come. So I thought, yeah, it was really, really special. 
Yeah, that's, that sounds so amazing. And I want to I want to go on a brief tangent. And um, I was listening to a podcast that I love called Talk Easy recently, and it's like a conversation podcast and Ethan Hawke was on. And he was, I mean, I, I, I've never been a huge fan, but the way he was sort of talking about art and film was incredibly beautiful. And he was talking about the power of cinema to sort of shape our values and the ways in which what what is sort of not just shown, but celebrated and paid attention to you know, opens up different ways of of seeing the world and, and, you know, different ways of valuing different perspectives. And I'm I'm aware that with, you know, curation and programming, it's not just about showing, it's about providing a platform through which to sort of interrogate, not just celebrate, but authenticate different perspectives. And I'm wondering how you go about assuming that responsibility, how you go about thinking about how this piece of work is going to be presented in a way that speaks to not just the people, as you say, that want to see it and that need to see it, but other audiences that might not have ever interacted with this this way of being and seeing before, how you make it accessible to all. Is that something that you're trying to do? Something I think about all the time. And I think as I've got into more into sort of like mentoring and training around curatorship and thinking and talking to people about how I curate or how what people curate or program, I think you can't try and like sort of um, you can't try and do it for everyone because <laughs> by do it trying to do it for everyone you do it for no one. So for me, it's yeah, it's trying to think about specifically what I'm trying to do in that specific space and who what audience is a priority for me in that particular moment and do it just for them. <laughs> and I think other people, I think people are drawn to authenticity. I think people, it doesn't have to be their truth. But I think if something is speaking truth and it feels really authentic and it feels thought through and it feels mind, yeah, mindful, I don't know. It just, I think people will be drawn to that. I mean, you can't, you're not going to get everyone. And sometimes, you know, if people have never engaged with something before and they have no interest and you don't reach them, then that's fine. But me, for me, it's about prioritizing specific audiences. And, and like I said, audiences perhaps have not been prioritized historically. And I do, th- I do genuinely think that other people respond to it. Um, because of because of that because there's just that that kind of authentic authenticity in it but I also do think it's I don't know it's an incredible privilege uh, to to be a curator and I think I grapple a lot with this idea of sort of imposing myself too much on a film or films and it's difficult because you do have to give people a route in sometimes and allow them to perhaps to experience things that they may not that they may not historically have have felt because for them or that maybe it hasn't felt accessible and yeah and to kind of frame it in a way that allows them to to access it and then they they can kind of generate their own meaning once once they're there so I think yeah I think it's about I don't know trying yeah trying to create spaces that allow that to happen and I I really like discussions or conversation pieces I like to bring in as many other people around around a film as I can that's not me if I if I've curated an event I prefer not to post a Q&A or a discussion or do an introduction really um because I think that I've already put too much of myself on it at that point and I want to bring somebody else in mm. and you know if I'm if I'm if I'm briefing um again quote quote unquote a host or something I I try not to tell them too much about my own thinking when I was doing when I was putting films together or when I or about the kind of whole program as a whole and try and bring in as many voices into that space as I can um, I, I did try and do that with testimonies. We had like a, a huge number of, of different people that and Q&A hosts and especially in the uh, in the regional places, people that were from those communities and lived in those spaces to come in and contextualize it for their audiences. Yeah, it's just trying to find that balance of realizing that you have power and, and, and privilege to be able to bring people things and, and access to films. That they that they wouldn't necessarily not only just that they wouldn't have gravitated before that they would even if they wanted to they wouldn't have been able to gain access to so you're giving that you're literally giving them access to something but at the same time not trying to impose too much of yourself on it and not trying to constrain it or saying it has to be read in a particular way or being upset or disappointed if people don't consume it in the way that you'd intended it to or, or how you'd imagined it to because that's yeah that's to me that's not how that's not how film is it's it's actually what I find the most exciting now is to think is to watch other people watch audiences watch something that you've watched and understand it and get something completely different out of it yeah it reminds me of the power of film so I'd love to talk a little bit more about your role at IF Films and and one of the pieces of work that I know that you do with them is working on an app called Curated um Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit more about what that is like what its function is you know what it was designed to do 
it's been a bit of a sort of a pandemic project. And it's, it's, it's funny talking about Aya Films as like a company because it is just Justine. <laughs> uh, Justine Atkinson, who runs it, who's a really good friend of mine. And we've worked in various different capacities. It's just her. <laughs> um, and she and it really is her sort of brainchild, really. She's worked a lot in, in film curation and in festivals. And she actually used to run African Motion Film Festival and did a lot of thinking around collaborative curation and trying to move away from that singular creative director behind a festival and thinking about how you sort of, again, spread out that power of curation and, and creativity around a group of people, kind of try and flatten that structure of the festival more often. So it's all been, it was all kind of part of that thinking. And she, she's been thinking about this, this training platform for a while. But then as we went into, you know, the pandemic times, uh, the role of, digi- of the digital space became, you know, even more pertinent and, and in, in the front of people's minds. And most importantly, funders <laughs> were there without gravitating towards things that, that were like sort of recognizing the digital space and, and the potential of it. So, yeah, it's this project funded by Screen Scotland. And it's essentially, yeah, it's, a, it's an app that's basically a like a step by step course that like talks you through the different processes of, of film curating, of like putting on your own screening event so it's got I mean I won't go through all the chapters but it's got like watch it where at the beginning you basically just watch a bunch of films we've partnered with um Mubi and Argo so you get access to those you just watch a bunch of films and then you and there's analyze it where you, you basically each chapter has a combination of sort of written learning material and also exercises so you know there's a lot of, and videos from um sort of people working in the industry so you can analyze it you you know you learn kind of the different ways in which people analyze films or how we can look at films and then you there's like a series of exercises to make you think about the films you just watched and watch it and then yeah it goes all the way through where you learn about venues and like rights holders and all the way through to screen it which is essentially we built a, a vod platform <laughs> as I look back on it, I'm like, it didn't have to be this big. <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite, um, it's been quite an ordeal. And Justine has really been sort of doing is at the forefront of the like management of it, essentially mm-hmm. like building an app herself. And uh, yes, yeah, so it allows people to to put on their own online events. So it's a an endeavor to try and sort of democratize curation, and because it can be, I think it can be an incredibly opaque. I think even when you get into these roles where you know, traineeships or internships at, at festivals, I think you still only learn about how it works in that specific organization. And again, it's that thing where you end up in one department and you sort of, you only get to know how your role works. And, you know, naturally people, people are running a festival or running an organization. They don't have time to sit you down and go, the reason why we had to do this is because this distributor holds these rights and they've capped this, you know, they've capped the number of tickets or all these and kind of explain that minutia detail. And then they just go and do it and they come up with these incredible things. And I just think it's the, the, the kind of programming space and film festivals has been like, and what and what films get shown in there and how they've been shown have been defined by such a small group of people for so long. And it's, yeah, it's these singular creative directors, heads of programming. Because even, you know, you're, you're at a level of like programming selectors and people that are watching the films. And that when it comes down to it, it's that it's those, you know, those few people at the top that make the decisions. Mm. And I just think it's just more exciting <laughs> to have more people in, in that space. But I do think that there's a lot of egos. And I think a lot of people rely on things being opaque because, it, you know, they there's a lot of fear that people are going to come for their jobs if they understand how it works. So people mm. are very like, are not very open with with telling people because I don't know there's some sort of sense of uh, I had to learn or I have to go through this thing so you have to and I think yeah so for me it's very much this app is very much about like just give people the information <laughs> just allow them to you know just allow them to put on their own events you know mm-hmm. either online or in person and just yeah just give people the tools to be able to go out and and just do it. And it's the top-down mentality that's troubling as well, because you'll get people in kind of junior positions, which is, you know, good, but it doesn't move the meter far enough because what you're doing is is you're just indoctrinating them, if that's not too powerful a word, mm. into into a culture that already exists and into a lens and a way of curating that already exists. Absolutely. And, and they're just going to absorb that culture. Whereas I think, yeah, what sounds so great about curator and what you're trying to do is is as you say giving them the tools to kind of create their own culture and create their own way of doing things that is you know completely outside of the the institutions that might already exist yeah and I think it's a benefit to us all it's a benefit to the 
to the film industry in general because you know like we want to, things need to change we need to evolve and it's exciting to think about like I don't have the capacity to think outside of my own experience often and I think again it's such a privilege to be able to to just facilitate people to go through this course because I learned so much and about yeah about curation and I think my own practice is expanded because of because of being in contact with with, with these people that are thinking in, in new and in such incredibly exciting ways and speaking again to audiences that are not necessarily being spoken to I know you also have roles uh, as a as a guest lecturer at the University of Glasgow, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, in their film departments. And I'm wondering if that also, like, you, you're obviously very passionate about um, democratising knowledge and, and passing that on and paying that forward. And I wonder if that's part of the reason that you teach, because it's it's about giving a new generation the kind of the knowledge that you've accrued. Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily been part of that same mentality for me, just because. I do, as I said earlier, I do still struggle with university as an institution. Mm. And I think, and again, as, as you said right at the beginning, it's a privilege, you know, not everybody gets to have to go to university. So I'm aware that I'm existing in a very particular space where the people that are in the room already have a privilege that a lot of people don't. But at the same time, I found incredibly, I found teaching incredibly, again, like a huge learning thing for me, but also just like a luxury. Um, I've taught African cinema, essentially, and it's just so nice to be able to talk about films that I'm so excited about with people that are really interested. It's amazing. And again, I think it's that thing of watching other people or listening to other people that have watched films that you you know so well and that bring new understandings and new readings of them into it and I think especially with the Royal Conservatory of Scotland none of the students well only a couple of them were from film studies backgrounds because it's sort of like a practice based Mm. university so there was people that did theatre and people that did music and they're bringing that perspective to readings of films and discussions of films and it's incredible because they're picking up things about the score or the way that the lighting is perhaps similar to theatre lighting and it's just I don't know it's it's exciting for me and I think as well cinema from the African continent or cinema by black filmmakers or what we call like I don't know cinema filmmakers that are not in the kind of mainstream often get spoken about purely in terms of the themes of their films in terms of like their political value and we often don't talk about the craft and don't talk about these filmmakers as as practitioners and as having a craft and like as the detail that goes and the thinking that goes into into making their films it's often just about what is this film saying about them? Who is it speaking to or what stereotypes it's speaking against? So I think, again, that's what I try to embed, it, embed in my teaching and, and certainly in the, in the Royal Conservatoire that came out a lot in our discussions about the sort of craft of the filmmaking. And I'm also intrigued by your presence on a number of boards of a number of organisations, mm-hmm. including uh, BIFA, the Glasgow Film Institute, um, and the Document Human Rights Film Festival. I mean, how does that arise? Like that For me, that's quite an opaque process as well in terms of like, is mm-hmm. it only do they advertise for new board members how do you go about getting kind of inculcated into that world for document I was invited like you know it's quite a small ecosystem of of film festivals in Scotland and you just start to know people and there was a position that came up and they invited me to to come along so that was my first experience of being a board with document and Glasgow was actually the same they invited but it was it was publicly advertised the job so I had I went through a, a you know a formal application process and everything and interviews and everything like that and the and before I, I applied but I think it is incredibly a big thing and until I to, until I got invited to document I didn't even ever consider consider that I could be on a board and to anyone listening that they think that's them I would like I would apply we need more people who don't think that they need to be on boards to be on boards because <laughs> they're again they've historically been populated by a very specific type of person a person yeah it's been an incredible experience being on boards learning again more sort of holistically and on a macro level how organizations operate especially within within the charity sector which um, Glasgow Film is how you sort of balance you know financial stability and commerciality with like ethos and values and making sure that you are operating with those values and ethos at core which is what a charity is all about that is that's been a really interesting process for me Let's talk about it broadly, because I know you can't go into like specific mm. details. But I mean, I've always thought, well, I'm, I'm too young. Like they want people that have mm. got like years and years of experience. So it'd be good to hear about what exactly you're providing a perspective on or an insight into, you know, what is your function when you're sitting on those boards? 
I think firstly, you don't need to worry about experience of being on a board because I, it's the responsibility of the organization you're in to make sure that you have the tools to, to operate as a board member efficiently and like, you know, properly. And I think that even people that have been in, in, in the industry, perhaps, or in any industry for a very long time, don't necessarily have the skills or knowledge of what it is, what it needs to be a board member. And actually, as part of one of my organizations, I got to go on a, on a course about being a board member. And I found it incredibly enlightening because it, and, and there are, there's, there's actually sort of documentation, especially within the charity sector about what you're actually meant to do and what your role is. Obviously, it varies depending on what board you're on. But I think it's, for me, it's about, yeah, holding the organization accountable. You want to, if you're going to be on a board, it's about being on a board of an organization that you believe in its core values and its core ethos of what it's trying to do. And then being an advocate for those core values, because I think anybody who's working in the actual sort of logistical running of an organization can perhaps lose sight of that or can, you know, don't have time or energy or resources to keep checking in with that. And again, is thinking about things like money, <laughs> paying people, just getting getting projects finished. Yes, for me, it's about really believing in what the organization is doing, what it should be doing, but also thinking more widely about what's happening in the industry as a whole, in the sort of country as a whole, and how thinking about how how you can help facilitate or steer that the organization through that and making sure that it's in keeping with the values, which seems like very broad and <laughs> And sort of wishy-washy. And again, I think it depends what board you're sitting on. Because there's a lot of like practical things. For example, in a charity, you have to sign off the accounts. You have to read, you have to read the accounts. You, you essentially run the as a charity, you essentially run the business. Like you're you're the CEO is you're the CEO's boss, essentially. <laughs> so and you're like financially viable for the entire company if it goes down. But I don't know, there's like something in the paperwork means which means you don't end up you would you have to pay like a penny or something if it went in our business. But yeah, so you know it, it's on paper, certainly it's a, it is quite an important role. Um so there's a lot of that sort of like really practical stuff. But then, you know, and again depending on what board there are opportunities to to like yeah, to push the executive staff or the you know the, the management to if they if you don't if you don't believe that what they're doing is is acting in in the interests of the organization or you know offer yeah you're you don't know how and where how and what your experience is going to how it's going to be useful to them mm-hmm. and I think certainly boards need young people <laughs> especially boards in it's a, the irony to me is that you know obviously we're about to see the the BFI changing its you know its strategy but for, for the last 10 years however long it's been the priority audience has been 18 to 30 year olds mm-hmm. these are young people but all the boards of all the organizations that are, that are supposedly needing to prioritize the audiences are made up of people who are not in that age range. <laughs> so, you know, you have value in just in just in that. But then also you have, you know, you have, like everybody's lived experience is, is valuable. I'm just winding down. I'd love to know if there's like a program you've curated or a project you've worked on that you're particularly proud of. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just because it's just finished, but it's the freshest in my mind. But with VR Parable, we just finished a project called Love Letters to Cinema, um, which was a British Council-funded project where we collaborated with an organisation in Kenya called um, Manyata Screening. And they, um, they've got a similar ethos to, to We Are Parables. So they put on these big sort of experiential outdoor screening events around short films from the kind of greater East African region. So they've been on my radar for a while and made up of filmmakers that I know their work of. And it's been such a long and incredible process. We basically found out about the funding maybe 48 hours before the deadline was about to end. And uh, we had a meeting like the day that the funding was meant to happen, mm-hmm. that the funding was meant to go in. And we just, there was just a vibe on the call. And we were just like, Anthony and Tian, who from We Are Parable, hadn't met them at all before, had never come into contact with them. So immediately, we were just like, we need to work together. We have to do this. And we just had this thing where everybody was like, should we do it? And we were like, yes. And I think if everybody says yes and everybody's on board, like, and you can make anything happen. I really do think that that's true. So we wrote an application in essentially 24 hours for this project and somehow miraculously got this funding. I mean, it, I don't know if they somehow, it's, it's an incredible project and there was a lot of thought that went into it, even though we did it in a very short amount of time. But yeah, so we, collabor- we collaboratively created a program of short films from the UK and East Africa. And then we created this exhibition like a physical exhibition around it and also a series 
of podcasts with filmmakers with the filmmakers in the program and we toured it when we originally put in the application it was meant to be an online this is all meant to be online and it's somehow again because of the vibe we got we got over excited because everyone kept saying yes and then so yeah we um we were in Nairobi at the beginning of January of, of July so we were yeah we took it to Nairobi we did I didn't even know 12 screenings in Nairobi then we took it to a place called Laikipia, which is um, just in the Rift Valley um, outside of outside of Nairobi in this like castle, <laughs> this castle that they built in the middle of nowhere, this big cultural arts centre. Again, did another five screenings there with like, you know, local schools and, and, and we took the exhibition there as well. And then I flew the entire exhibition back in my suitcases <laughs> and brought it to London and we did it in London at Rich Mix. And then literally last week we did it in Bristol, or the week before last, we did it in Bristol. And then we and then it went online for the last week of July and it's literally just finished at the end of last week. Mm-hmm. And it's been one of the most exhausting but also rewarding and incredible experiences and it's exactly it was everything that I that I couldn't think of a more perfect like programming experience like obviously I got to go back to Kenya in a work context which is just I just never even fathomed when we moved to the UK that I would ever have the opportunity to do and it's that exact thing of like getting to see the same program with like we think we had about 500 people come across the whole month in various different capacities and experience it in different ways and yeah it was just it was just magical the only thing is is that the Kenya team didn't get visas to come over Mm. because our country is awful and I hate our government and so that was the one sort of sour Mm. side to it is that they didn't get to come and experience our our audiences here experience the same way that we got to experience in Mm. Kenya so that was really really deeply unfortunate and really upsetting especially because of the bond that we that we built with them but um it was just magical but just when you find people that you that like get what you want to do and just like are on board and are just hugely talented and just yeah it was just amazing I'd love to get your thoughts on what you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far I find this really tricky because I feel like every project I do I learn something new (laughs) there's always a (laughs) curveball but I think for me and this is something I still struggle with I think it I've really learned that you cannot please everyone because I'm a real, like, I'm just really a please. I want people to like me. I want everyone to love everything I do. And for a long time, I think that hindered me. It hindered me in what I was able to do and the spaces that I was like, would, would allow. Or, but I didn't push to be in particular spaces um, and the way that, like I said earlier about my personality, I just didn't have that belief in my own, in myself. And I think for a lot, for a long time, I did things the way that I thought that they were meant to be done because of the experts were the people that weren't me and I had to sort of emulate what they did it, yeah like I say it's not something that I've cracked <laughs> but I do have a little you know I do find moments where I have you know I do I have confidence in my own voice and I I recognize that sometimes you can be in spaces where nobody thinks the same as you but that doesn't mean that you're wrong and doesn't mean that they're right and it doesn't have to be a right person and a wrong person anyway but I think it's because these spaces have historically been occupied by very particular people and of course they it's sort of like they're indoctrinated a bit like you're saying into this mentality and that's why everybody thinks the same same way and I think it's a hard thing to do especially if you're if you're coming up and you're trying to get into spaces and those people you rely on those people to give you jobs or to allow you know to give your experience it can be difficult to say or just go in and tell them why they're talking rubbish yeah um, but I I do look back and I think I, I do wish I'd sort of pushed a little bit more and I do try and embody that as much as I can Finally, I would love to know if there is a film by a women director that you'd like to recommend today. Um, yeah, I think about this. I wanted to recommend something that was available to watch. There's a film called We or New by Alice Diop, a documentary that's, that's screening on movie at the moment. Yeah, it's a really, it's just a really beautiful, beautiful documentary. And I think um, obviously I mean, she made it last year, but it feels like really, she's really sort of captured feeling and it feels so resonant with so many of like things I've been going through or, or thinking about the world and life and our relationship with each other over the last couple of years and she did yeah she just has such a I don't know because like it's a tenderness to the way that she films people but also who she films and it she makes films about you know the small things like the, the person to the side of the screen or the person off the shot or the person that we're not used to like sort of zooming in on and I think it's that thing that I was saying earlier about black documentary filmmakers her work feels so 
close to my reality like the way that I experience the world and because she doesn't do work in sort of she doesn't do make linear story she's moving that's like you know everything's fragmented she's moving between different stories but it's, I feel like that's how we experience the world that's how life is so it feels more real to me that is on my movie watch list actually so um, oh, is it? It up. Carmen this has been such an enriching conversation um thank, thank you so much you. for your time I've taken up quite a lot of it um but I really yeah, it's been wonderful thanks for listening to me my pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Girl Grip for pod-related news. If you want to listen to more episodes like this, I recommend digging out my interviews with Anna Bogatskaya, Karina Antrobus, Dorota Leck and Gemma Desai. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Mm-hmm.